Welcome to Sustainable Minds, exploring the interplay of corporate brand, corporate beliefs, and ESG, brought to you by Baker. In every episode, we'll investigate how purpose, vision, and values can guide your company's sustainability actions, behaviors, and mindsets. And we'll discuss their impact with the help of ESG-focused guests from around the globe. I'm your host, Rocket. And I'm your host, Gary. Let's get started. Today, we're speaking with Oliver Dudok Van Heel. Welcome to Sustainable Minds. Thank you. Yeah. Oliver is a sustainability expert with over 20 years of experience as a corporate sustainability advisor, helping multinational enterprises manage risk and capture growth opportunities arising from the sustainability agenda. Just as of last March, Oliver made a transition and he is the Global Sustainability Director at Carney, a management consulting firm with a focus on bringing the perspective, understanding, and hands-on know-how to build the future as it's seen. As the director, he's responsible for providing sustainability advisory services to lead multinational companies in developing Carney's sustainability and ESG offerings. And we're going to go there in a minute. But previous to that, you were at Freshfields, Brookhouse, and Dringer for seven years. Dringer, yeah. Yes, well, Freshfields. And you were the head of client sustainability and environment, and you held multiple positions there for the seven years. And prior to that, you were director at Aldersgate Group, a multi-stakeholder alliance driving action for competitive and environmental sustainable economy. You're also a fellow at the University of Cambridge Program for Sustainable Leadership. Institute for Sustainability Leadership. Institute. And you teach several executive sustainability leadership programs there. You're also a fellow at the Center for the Understanding of Sustainability Prosperity, where you focus on reframing the negative narrative that shapes our understanding of the world we live in and influences our belief that sustainable prosperity is possible. I want to make sure we talk about this negative narrative and reframing that. That's great. Okay. Terrific. Oliver, welcome to Sustainable Minds. Thank you. Yeah. So, Carney, why? Well, I'm driven by impact. I started working sustainability almost 25 years ago now. Wow. And I was doing it. I came out of business school. I could have gone to an investment bank. I studied law. I could have gone to a law firm. I always felt like there's stuff going on in the world that needs fixing. And so that's a big motivator for me and always has been. And in understanding that, I realized that I wanted to kind of work for organizations that could drive impact. And whilst I could have chosen an NGO, I could have chosen a number of different types of organizations, I always had the belief that business has both the financial means the innovation, the human capital to drive real change if it sets its mind to it. And that's what got me into working with multinationals. It's that belief that actually one of the most influential stakeholders in our global economy are businesses, and that if anything is to change, businesses need to be part of that solution. So move forward good 20 years, and I'm looking for another challenge after Freshfields, and I'm thinking... Where can I have impact using my skills and using what I've done over, over the years? 
And I was looking at a number of different organizations. I spoke to a number of different organizations. But what struck me at Carney was this real understanding that you can drive value and impact hand in hand. You don't have to choose between one or the other. Clearly, Carney is a global management consultancy with a very high-level corporate client base. They are in it to make money. There's no doubt about that. But what they get and what really excited me was this real understanding that making money and driving impact go hand in hand. And if we do it well, then everyone wins. And specifically, Carney's kind of core expertise is in delivery. Yes, we do a lot of strategy work, but implementation, working within organizations, within supply chains, is what Carney is really strong at. And that's excited me as well, because ultimately, if you don't deliver the change, you can think it, you can strategize about it, but if you don't deliver it, it ain't going to happen. Well, isn't that where management consultancies get the knock? As they came in, they, they come in, they spend hundreds of thousands, if not millions. Uh, they go deep for six, nine months, and they lay out this very, sounds great, this plan, but it's the execution of that plan. It's the challenge, the delivery, the implementation. Yeah, it's sort of interesting because... Our background, our firm being a corporate brand firm agency opposed to consumer brand, we have always been involved with rolling out corporate identities with your internal audience, your employees. They have to get the job done. And so that implementation of purpose and values, it now It's been fascinating to us how it's become center stage also in ESG. And you're so right about employees, because not only do they have to get the job done, they want to get the job done. There are very few topics that are more empowering to people than feeling that they are contributing through their work to actually making the world around them a better place. We live for for decades, many of us, and I would include myself in that part of my career, with this disconnect between your home life and your work life. I have certain values that I aspire to in my home life. For the moment I step into the office, those go out the window and I have to focus on the business priorities. That is very demoralizing to feel that you have to separate the two. And I think what this agenda does is it gives people the opportunity. And I see it every day at Carney. People who are saying, I really want to work in this space. What can I do? How can I help? How can I support? How can I talk to my clients about it? The ability to bring those two worlds together is something that's very empowering and very powerful. So I'm curious. I want to talk about three things about your role there. Advisory service, the firm's leading, market-leading client base. What types of services, I'm just curious, what types of clients will you be working with and what do you do for them? Oh, my God. I mean, the types of clients ranges significantly. So my personal focus is predominantly but not exclusively on financial services clients and private equity organizations. So within financial services, it's effectively kind of capturing this moment that we're in where we need to make a significant transition, a low-carbon transition, a circular transition, a social impact transition. That transition requires financing. And banks are now in a position where they can actually provide the financing for this and still generate the returns that they require because the demand is so big. So that's a lot of what we do, what I do with banks. On the private equity side, it's if you're a private equity firm, you typically own an asset for anywhere between five, maybe 10, usually seven years. If you buy a company today with a view to selling it in five to seven years time, and you don't get sustainability, 
you're going to make some pretty big mistakes. If you don't understand the impact of your carbon footprint on the value of that company when you want to sell it, if you don't understand your supply chain well enough to identify potential supply chain risks or how to decarbonize your supply chain, you're going to make mistakes and devalue the company on exit. So what we're doing there is we're looking at these companies within a portfolio and saying, you know, if this company is to maximize its value, these things need to start happening before you think of selling. And prior to that, of course, on acquisition, you need to do, I mean, any company on acquisition will do due diligence. Well, ESG due diligence is a big topic now. Identifying sustainability or ESG risks before you buy a company is a key part of really knowing how much you should pay for it or if you should buy it in the first place. So those are the two industries that I focus on. But I do a lot of work in consumer goods. So I'm working with a global consumer goods company to develop and deliver a training program for their leading employees. So for their kind of senior managers to understand how this stuff plays out what their role is in delivering on strategic objectives of the organization itself. So this goes down to the implementation piece. Yeah, Yeah. I'm sort of interested because one of the things that I think is so challenging is that we seem to have a lot of companies that are making the goal of 2050 decarbonization, net zero, and yet the strategies, they're not really clear, specific They're more intentions than they are actions. And it's troubling that the average tenure of a CEO or top management is shorter (laughs) than 2050. (laughs) So who's really getting down to the nuts and bolts and making this happen? Or is it just a lot of talk that they know they have to say right now? I think a few years ago, you could have gotten away with the talk. You could have got away with saying, yeah, we're really serious about this. It's our number one priority. And here are our targets for 2030. That's now changing, partly because there's a demand for transparency and accountability. So people are actually looking at what you're doing and assessing it compared to peers. They're looking at how your targets are changing year on year. But I think critically, particularly in the net zero space, most companies that are serious about this are signing up to so-called science-based targets. And in order to have your science-based targets accredited by the Science-Based Targets Initiative, and we are now in excess of 1,000 companies, probably close to 2,000 companies now who have done this, you have to show year-on-year progress. So you can't just say, here's a target for 10 years from now, I'll leave it to my successor to deliver it. You can't even say, if you're committing the science-based targets, we're going to do exactly what we're doing until 2045, and then we'll figure it out. You have to show year-on-year progress. That puts the onus on the companies to actually do some tangible things that change all the time. And a lot of our work comes from that, comes from actually helping them. Okay, you've made that commitment. And a lot of them do make commitments without knowing how to achieve them. And I don't really have a problem with that because some of it requires a level of depth of thinking and to some extent a level of innovation that they may not yet have. But if you're serious about the target, then you will put in place the structures that can deliver that. A lot of our work, as I said, is about putting those plans in place, understanding you know, what needs to happen at the plant level. How does their supply need to change? Do they source their goods from different countries? Do they change their distribution networks? Do they change their factories? All of those things are part of that overall puzzle. And then the critical point, of course, going forward is the impacts of products. I was looking at a case study of a, a tech company. And they were, so they developed technology products in lighting, in medicine, in a number of different areas. 
And they were looking at their footprints across their entire value chain. And what they discovered was that their footprint was 10 times smaller within their operations and supply chain than it was within the use of the products by their customers. Now, that becomes part of their responsibility now. So you are becoming responsible for the use of your products. So you need to think in advance that if I'm going to develop, say, a washing machine, I'm going to have to come up with technology that enables that washing machine to work at a much lower energy level than it did in the past. Because otherwise, it's on me to find ways to find other savings on my carbon footprint. So that's becoming a really big dynamic now. It's the same with the oil companies. The oil and gas companies are making commitments to be net zero by 2050. Well, that will include being net zero with their products, oil and gas. In other words, they're going to have to see a fundamental shift in their product base in order to deliver on that. So you're kind of talking about the gap between ambition and reality here. And uh, commitments are great, but how to deliver on them? Yeah. In a way, that's kind of where at Carney we see our sweet spot is helping our clients bridge that gap. That's the big question. Yeah, there's a lot of wiggle room out there, a lot of greenwashing. And I'm sure the, the lens is just going to come out, come tighter on those people. And one company may be great in the ESG and in the, the E part, but over in the social part, there could be some labor issue that they're horrible in. So, yeah, and well, you've got to have a, a kind of holistic view on this. Yeah, I was just saying the realization that it's all connected from the governance to your employees really are a lot of the social and then doing the right thing environmentally. I was wondering, and just in your personal opinion, I was reading Deloitte's study recently about Generation Z and the millennials. And I sort of feel like I can't wait until there are more of them as CEOs because I certainly can't wait until they get into Washington because we got to get these old people out. They've lived in a different world and they're not as concerned with making the hard change that needs to happen. And the fact that you teach too how do you feel this out compared to the executives that you work with, a lot of the multinational companies and the students that you interact with, the differences? So I think, I don't know whether it's the case that the older generation isn't concerned. I think that they are concerned, even if it's indirectly, because their own children or their friends' children are kind of raising their awareness. I think what they're lacking is creative thinking and belief that a different world is possible. They are assuming that because we've always done things in a certain way, that we can't, there's no point imagining it to be radically different. Now, of course, there are people, a lot of people, particularly in senior positions, who've got a vested interest in the status quo. They want things to remain as they are. That you need to shift, and that will change over time. And we're already seeing that within companies that even younger people come in, and they have a very different voice, and that voice generates change. We're also seeing it in companies who want to recruit. If you want to recruit the best people, you're going to have to have a pretty good story to tell on this front. And it's got to be a credible story because people are not listening to bullshit. They've got a very highly tuned bullshit radar and they're going to ask the difficult questions. So I think that you're right that there is that gives us hope. <laughs> the problem, of course, is we haven't got time to wait until they become the next CEOs. We need action today. And I think part of that, and this is something that I'm personally very interested in, is changing that kind of mindset, that belief about that change is possible. And part of that is a belief about 
the economic system that we have and our role as people within that economic system. I think we've tended to believe the mantra of growth is the only game in town. If only we can deliver economic growth, then everything else will be solved. Well, we focused on economic growth at the very least since the 1950s. And whilst it certainly served its purpose for a long time and for a number of decades, I think we saw since the 1980s that that as a as an objective of economy-wide policy is flawed. A lot of the problems we have is because, not because of growth per se, but because of prioritizing growth over other things. And so if you, what really should a society aim to achieve? Is the goal of society to deliver economic growth? I think no one will really believes that. What they believe is that economic growth will deliver a bunch of other things, which is well-being, quality jobs, etc. Why don't we just flip that over and say, let's not worry about growth. Growth may or may not happen. The goal of a society is to deliver, and I've done some work on this with the Aldersgate Group. I did some work on what are the characteristics of a truly successful and sustainable society. And it's delivering quality jobs. It's delivering equality of opportunity. It's delivering well-being for all. Those are socioeconomic indicators. And then environmental indicators are zero carbon, zero waste, and restoring natural systems. So why don't we focus the goal of economic policy on those things? And that may deliver growth or it may not. But frankly, if it delivers all those other things, who cares? And so I think if we can move away a little bit from that belief, and of course, we had this debate in the UK very recently when the new and now ex-Prime Minister Liz Truss kind of started her, her policy platform on a narrative around growth, that actually the market said, this is not right right now. We need other things. We need to focus on other things. There is already kind of that question mark around it. So for me, it's, that's a big part of it. It's what is our economy-wide narrative? What's the role of businesses in contributing to that? So is businesses' only role to contribute to growth? Well, I think we've gone past that now because we're moving from an era of shareholder capitalism, where the only thing that matters is the generation of shareholder value, to an era of stakeholder capitalism, where it's about meeting the needs of a wider group of players in society, including the planet. So if you look at the role of business, therefore, and how to deliver value to stakeholders, you're suddenly bringing a whole different kind of priorities. That debate needs to change. I think that's a very important part of achieving the change that we need. And, and young people are part of that because they do have a belief that a, a different world, they're not accepting the world that they were born in. They're thinking, no, this is too much wrong here. Yeah, and the millennial generation is the largest generation there is. I mean, it gives me great hope that it will deliver growth. Yes as well as sustainability. Part of what we're talking about is collaboration and the power of collaboration. And you kind of have a great example of it, of something that you founded, the uh, New York Circular City Initiative. Let me just read that, pull this off the website. The vision of the New York Circular City Initiative is to help create a city where no waste is sent to a landfill Environmental pollution is minimized, and thousands of good jobs are created through intelligent use of products and raw materials. We talk about a lot of macro things, but this is a city, and we're doing something in the city about something. How did you grow that? How did you yeah. start? So this came about when I was at Freshwells. We were looking to have kind of deliver an impactful initiative in New York, which was our biggest office in the U.S., and I was tasked with kind of coming up with an idea around that. And because of the Cambridge work that I do, I've always been both very closely exposed to and a big fan of the circular economy. The challenge with the circular economy for many years was a concept rather than a, an actual thing that was being delivered. But that started shifting. 
And New York City is a fascinating city for loads of reasons. But one of the reasons it's a fascinating city is it's got, of course, a very small land mass, a significant population that consumes a lot. The second biggest consuming city in the world after Tokyo. So you bring all that together and you've got a challenge, right? How do you deal with all this consumption in that small landmass? How do you get rid of the waste? And how do you ensure that actually you're not, in through all that consumption, also diminishing stocks of scarce resources? Now, that's not a new concept, but what we try to do is effectively bring together key players within the New York City ecosystem. So we brought, brought together the mayor's office, New York City EDC, the Economic Development Corporation, which is responsible for kind of economic growth and productivity in New York City and employment. We had some leading financial institutions, HSBC, Goldman Sachs. We had some leading corporations like Unilever, Cisco Systems, H&M, as well as some key uh, civil society organizations like the Ellen MacArthur Foundation kind of created the whole idea of the circular economy and, and others. And the idea of this was really to bring together different stakeholder groups who have a different perspective on the same problem and discuss, okay, so if we were to achieve a circular economy in New York, what would it look like? How would we be able to deliver that? What does it really need to achieve? But the first thing you need to do in order to have that conversation is define why the circular economy is a good thing for New York City. And that was the kind of the initial focus of our work was, okay, let, why is this good for New York City? What does New York City care about? Yes, it cares about waste because it's a challenge. But almost above that, it cares about job creation. That was a big target for Mayor de Blasio at the time, was to create 100,000 new quality jobs in New York City. And he cares about economic productivity. So we looked at how could the circular economy actually deliver on those three things, environmental benefits, job creation, economic productivity. And what we found through our research was that actually it can deliver on all of those. It could deliver up to 11,000 productive quality jobs within the city of New York. It could deliver up to $10 billion in additional productivity. And it can also deliver, of course, a range of environmental benefits. So that was, it was really the idea was to set the scene for what can, why is this good for the city? And then we looked at what other things that the city can do, and not just the city itself, but also the businesses within the city, in order to help deliver this. There is a role to play for policy, a big role to play for policy, but there's also a role to play in other types of instruments. So procurement is a big example. If you look at the city of New York, the institution, not the businesses within New York City, procure for close to $20 billion a year in goods and services. Now, if you're able to make just 5% of that procurement budget on condition of circularity, so in other words, purchase from mm. more circular businesses, you're creating this huge demand, which will be met in the market. And that's not even talking about all the businesses in New York City. The other area was around financing. Typically, circular economy businesses are non-traditional models. They are models that either use another company's waste in order to create its own resources, or they are models that, that look at delivering a service rather than a product. You know, car sharing schemes are a good example. The cars are a beautiful thing, but most cars sit idle for 95% of the time. And when they don't sit idle, they're used by one person where there is a capacity of five. So you're talking about a 1% productive vehicle for all the energy and cost that's gone into it. Car, car sharing schemes resolve that problem. One car, multiple people constantly in use. But it's a different business model. And it takes time for the financing to kind of get their heads around those types of business models. So financing was a big piece. There's lots of others. I won't bore you with them now, but you can find, all, uh, find out more about that on circularnyc.org. Yes, I thought it was very fascinating. I love that people 
have come together from all aspects and from all concerns around sustainability. That's great. But there's a clear reason why partnerships are the 17th Sustainable Development Goal. Without partnerships, you won't achieve the other 16. like that. Okay. There's something going on, and we see it in the news, and it's a topic you like. It's ensuring people don't get left behind. Somehow, this whole notion of what's been going on around what we've been doing, the downside of sustainability, hasn't hurt our advanced economies and countries, but it's these poor countries that are really getting hit by these unprecedented climate change issues and a lot of issues. There are huge inequities in the world, and those exist both in in developed countries and developing countries. You're quite right that most of the environmental burden that we're placing on the planet today is being suffered by the poorer populations. And that manifests itself in things like who are the first victims of flooding and of hurricane. It's the poorer populations. But it also manifests itself in the developed world. Where do most poor people live? They live in the vicinity of factories, in the most polluting environments of cities, because that's where real estate is the cheapest and they can afford to live. There's an inequality there as well. And yes, people are being left behind, but they're also being left behind in terms of economic inequality. The fact that the gap between the rich and the poor, in spite of continuous growth in GDP, global GDP, is widening, is just staggering. What it basically says, and since the pandemic has gone even more in that direction, is that the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. And whilst there are growing middle class, particularly in developing countries, that inequality is a big issue. And it's a big issue because it also affects the well-being of societies as a whole. There's some fantastic research that was done in the UK and was replicated in other parts of the world called the spirit level. And it was two academics who looked at the extent to which inequality is actually an indicator of ill health in societies. And ill health was described and defined as poor access to education, increasing mental health, increasing obesity, increasing crime rates, all the kinds of things that you really don't want in an economy, in a society. And societies that are deeply unequal, even if they have more GDP per capita, tend to have more instances of these societal ills than societies that are poorer, but have less inequality or more equality. So the contrast is between nations like Scandinavian nations, which typically have low levels of inequality and very healthy functioning economies, and a country like the US, which is very high in GDP per capita, but has a lot of these challenges because the inequality levels are huge and rising. That's something that we can't believe in a transition towards a more sustainable, low-carbon future if people are left behind. You have to bring the two together. That is a big challenge, but it's also an opportunity. Who's going to deliver a renewable economy in the UK, in the US? It's people who can install solar panels. Solar panels. It's people who can insulate homes. It's Van Jones wrote in his book, The Blue Collar Economy, about this opportunity to align our needs to effectively retrofit a nation, in his words, with the growing unemployment crisis. Give people access to skills that enable them to be the people who will deliver the green transition. You recently talked about the sustainability imperative, and this has given companies a purpose and a focus beyond profit. We've touched about we've touched about on this a little bit. 
that will ensure long-term viability and how business leaders can steer organization through today's volatility. And I would add purpose, focus, and the values that they possess as a company to help them ensure that. So how do we ensure that that's going to carry through from year-to-year leadership team to uh, leadership team? Well, I think it starts with a growing understanding that actually this stuff delivers value. So the point I was making earlier about why I joined Carney, why Carney's committed to this, is because it understands that value and impact go hand in hand. So under, knowing that and understanding that makes these decisions a lot easier because purpose, therefore, is a driver of value. I mean, Larry Fink, CEO of BlackRock, talks about purpose as one of the things that they look at to define what, what companies to invest in. Now, why is that important? Because the right purpose gives people a reason to come into work. It makes them more productive. It makes their work-life balance more enjoyable. And it effectively makes the company more successful. It also enables better relationships with stakeholders. There's a reason why companies during the pandemic were actually, the companies that were good at ESG, that were high ESG performers, performed better in the pandemic from a financial perspective in the stock markets than their peers. Those reasons were, were twofold, effectively. One was they were less leveraged. So they had less debt, which of course helps in periods of economic crisis. And, but the other reason was that they had much better relationships with their stakeholders because they had that element of purpose that meant that they did prioritize the needs of their employees, their suppliers, their customers. And building that sense of mutual trust is so critical. And purpose plays a very big role in that, in saying, here's the why of why we exist. And why we exist is not because we want to make more money. Why we exist because we've got a, an ulterior purpose, something that is bigger than that, that helps us deliver value to society. Oh, and by the way, we'll make more money too. And that's great. So the purpose piece, I think, is there to kind of provide that North Star vision, if you want. But then, as you say very clearly, that has to be lived in organizations. You can have organizations with the best possible purpose. But if that purpose isn't enacted, if it's not reflected in how people interact with each other, if it's not reflected in systems such as performance systems, if your promotion or your bonus is not tied to how you stand up as an individual within your company and are you aligned with the values of the company, then no one's going to care about those values. So the ability to kind of be authentic and holistic in how you approach these things is, I think, an indicator of well-managed businesses and successful businesses. I'm curious because we work with corporations around the notion of corporate brand and culture, making sure things are aligned and lived. So in your work, do you get to look under the hood enough? For instance, we believe purpose and core beliefs, values, behaviors really drive a culture. Do you get to look underneath the hood to see what these companies' cultures are like and what makes successful cultures? I don't know if you have a thought on this, but I'm just curious. And energized employees, I mean, that can be a very powerful tool for sustainability efforts. Yes. So the answer is yes. I mean, we have a practice that looks at exactly that, leadership and change. But what makes it work is a number of things that we've already talked about, right? So it's having a clear, a common sense of purpose. But what's important in all of that is authenticity, honesty, because those things build trust. Trust is what gets you through the bad patches and trust is what helps you drive the good stuff, right? So if you're, it's why I do the work that I do. As I said at the beginning, I could have gone into 
corporate law, investment banking, whatever. But that didn't drive me. That didn't motivate me. That didn't make me want to get up in the morning. And I think if we can identify what are the things that make people want to get up in the morning and go to work on a Monday morning and feel like this is the best part of their week, that's so exciting. But that comes with having a clear vision. It comes with being credible in how you're going to deliver that vision. And it comes with building that sense of mutual trust and honesty. So it's fine. And I have no problem with companies you know, setting targets that are ambitious and they're not achieving them, as long as they can explain why they haven't achieved them. As long as there's a story behind, we didn't quite get it, but we're still trying. As opposed to, look, aren't we great? We're going to do all these wonderful things and you never hear about them again. So it's all of those things I think matter significantly. It's also then how you manage culture within, how that culture cascades down within organizations. You can have a fully enlightened CEO who really gets it. If she then decides to leave the business and there's nothing left, then whatever it was will revert back to type. If, however, that CEO creates a culture whereby this idea, Interface is a great example, the way Ray Anderson created a complete shift in what a carpet manufacturer should be and became this kind of first industrial ecological business, it's... It's still embedded there, even though Ray is now dead for over 10 years. And I think that's so important to be able to cascade that down and to give people that belief. I'm part of a story that I believe in, that is being acted truthfully in my business. And I feel like it's a great opportunity for me to contribute in a positive way. It's operationalized in the systems and in, as you say, the compensation, all those things that make it real. I was wondering also about how the positive prosperity, how you feel about recently this sort of pushback on ESG from in the United States by the right side saying they're going to take money out of BlackRock and threaten them, you know, that you're pushing ESG on us. It's, I mean, how do you even start to talk to that? I mean, you said it yourself, it's political. And you have to read the research. I read a really interesting stat the other day that says that there are more people, there are less people employed in the U.S. coal industry than there are working at Derby's food chain. Wow. So why are we making such a fuss about it? I understand that there are local considerations that if you're a local representative, you want to keep jobs in your community, but maybe there are other ways you can explore of bringing jobs to your community. This transition will happen whether they want to or not. Now, the question is, are they prepared for it or are they going to stick their heads in the sand until there's absolutely nothing left? That's really the question. So I think those debates are political. And unfortunately, we have the same in the UK. We have a two-party system, which means that there's a lot of I'm right, you're wrong debate and very little room for consensus. Whereas in other democracies where you have multi-party systems, you have to work together because you have to create governments with those people that you stood against in the elections because you have, that's how you get a majority. And I think that creates a spirit of collaboration that unfortunately seems to be missing in both countries in which we live. Uh, I'm going to change direction a little bit here. We often work with mid-cap and small-cap companies that are just entering the sustainability world. So my question to you is, what would you advise them? What are the three things that they should think about or do as they enter this huge, complicated, confusing world of sustainability. Absolutely. So I think one important thing about this is is know and understand your customer needs. That sounds trivial because of course every business does that, but 
if particularly if those businesses are further down in the supply chain, they are now part of their corporate customers' uh, value chain, and they have to act accordingly. Because if Coca-Cola decides that they have to go net zero, that means that all of their suppliers have to go net zero, because that's Coke's scope three, right? That's how you need to have that understanding. You need to know what's on the horizon. Now, what you also want to do, therefore, because making that shift, becoming a low-carbon business, when you haven't got the resources, when you're probably kind of firefighting on a, on a daily basis, is a real challenge. So you need to look at your customers and find ways to collaborate. We talked about collaboration earlier. I'm always struck by the example of Nestle, who have over 600,000 suppliers, up to a man and his cow in Pakistan, who sells his milk directly to Nestle. And they work with their supply chain in ensuring that they are, can raise their standards to a level that is acceptable to Nestle. And they co-invest in that. And, and what does that give them? That gives Nestle security of supply because they know they're creating a bond mm. and a relationship with those suppliers that makes it work. So if you're the supplier, you want to have that relationship. You want to understand your customer. Say, I know that you want to go net zero. Here's our situation. This is what we need. Can we work together? How can we help? The other thing is also I would look to collaborate within the sector, identify sources of common knowledge, because a lot of the stuff that we're talking about here is not competitive, right? It's pre-competitive. So to have those connections, to be able to talk to your peers, whether they are your competitors or not, about what are you doing? What's working for you? Rather than feeling like you've got to invent it from scratch. I think that's an important thing to do as well. And of course, larger businesses have a role to play in that. They can bring suppliers together. They can bring different companies together to have those conversations. And the other thing is tap into your people because one of the things that smaller businesses have is an ability to create a culture that's much harder to replicate in large organizations. So if you can create a culture that has that kind of shared North Star, that understands each other's values, that is able to work together, you will be a more successful and a purpose-driven business as a result. Fantastic. Yep. This is my wrap-up question, Oliver. Thank you so much. This has mm -hmm. been a great conversation, an enlightening conversation. So looking forward, next five, 10 years, what does this world of sustainability look like? What are we going to see five, 10 years out? What's the headline going to read? Unfortunately, I think that things will get better, but first they will have got a lot worse. I think, unfortunately, there is a, we don't seem to learn other yeah. than from our mistakes. And that applies to all of us. And I think whilst I see my job, and I've, done, I've seen my job over the years as sowing seeds that rarely germinate in the spring that you sow them. They tend to germinate five or 10 years later. And that's kind of what we're doing. We're sowing the seeds so that when push really comes to shove and people go, yeah, it's really time for a change, that at the very least, the capabilities are developed. The mindset is there to achieve that change. But it takes a lot to change how we think about ourselves. We think about ourselves as consumers before we think about ourselves as citizens these days. That already is part of the problem. We need to start rethinking who we are and what's fundamentally human about us. Is it the fact that we buy stuff all the time or is it the fact that we communicate with each other, collaborate with each other, engage with each other, sing with each other, dance with mm. each other? Those kind of changes are, are fundamental. And I do believe that human nature ultimately 
is, in, if I paraphrase Martin Luther King, the arc of human nature tends towards the good. I do think that's the case. I think that we are bombarded by negative stories and our media doesn't help, both our, our, our popular media, whether it's the movies we see, the TV the shows we watch, the news we see on a daily basis. They all tell us a story about what humans are like that is very far from the truth, I believe. But we need to start shifting that story and believe in human nature again. And then the shift will come. Wonderful thoughts. Greatly appreciate you sharing your insights and perspectives with us today. Very That was a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thank you. Hope we can do it again sometime. Absolutely. Hey, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Sustainable Minds wherever you get your podcasts. And please do live a review if you like what we're doing. It helps others discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. If you want to find out more about how we can help you evolve your corporate brand, culture, and ESG, head to bakerbrand.com. See you on the next episode of Sustainable Minds, exploring the interplay of corporate brand, core beliefs, and ESG.